resurrection. I know Easter was over last week, but Easter's a, resurrection is a big deal. Can't, can't do it just in one Sunday. So we, need to, uh, we need to celebrate the resurrection actually all year long. But we're going to look at it again this morning from John chapter 14. Uh, last Sunday we looked at the first half of this chapter. And um, if you remember, Jesus was comforting the disciples that's one of the most profound words about what the resurrection means, and Jesus gave it before he went to the cross, but in light of uh, what was about to transpire with his death on the cross. Let me read, uh, beginning with verse 15, the second half of the chapter, as we begin this morning. If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will never leave you, He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world at large cannot receive him because they are looking for him and they don't recognize him. But you do because he lives with you now and later he will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. In just a little while the world will not see me again, but you will. For I will live again, and you will too. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who obey my commandments are the ones who love me. And the ones who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them. And I will reveal myself to each one of them. Judas, not Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, said to Jesus, Lord, Why are you going to reveal yourself only to us and not to the whole world at large? Jesus replied, All those who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and live with them. Anyone who does not love me will not do what I say. And remember, my words are not my own. This message is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Counselor as my representative, and by the Counselor I mean the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I myself have told you. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give isn't like the peace the world gives. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you, I am going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really love me, you will be very happy for me, because now I can go to be with the Father who is greater than me. I have told you these things before they happen, so that you will believe when they do happen. I don't have much more time to talk to you, because the Prince of this world approaches. He has no power over me, but I will do what the Father requires of me, so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's be going. Uh, Jesus started off this passage by uh, a very familiar verses, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe in me. I go to prepare a place for you, and my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to, uh, uh, to prepare this place for you. And uh, this morning, uh, I titled the message, A Taste of Heaven. And uh, I want to start with this simple question. Um, well, let me, ask you, let me ask you this first. Raise your hand. How many of you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. 
Okay, pretty much unanimous. For some reason, there's some reason we want to go there. But here's a, another question. Why do you want to go there? What is it that's in heaven that you are so anxious to get to? Do you know? Um, what is it we hope to find when we get there? Well, I know uh, for many people, and I'm not saying this probably not of you, but if you were to ask kind of the general person on the street, or certainly if you were to ask me when I was about 13 years old, or maybe 30, I'm not sure. <laughs> Those ages kind of blend together. Um, if you were to ask me why I wanted to go to heaven, it basically boiled down to the fact that it kind of beat the alternative. You know, hell seemed like a really bad place where I was sure I didn't want to go. And it's like you got two choices, heaven or hell. But I don't want hell so much, so I'll take heaven, right? It's like it sounds like cooler there and there's not as much pain. So, you know, that's why people pick heaven. Um, you know, suffering, hell. Comfort, heaven. I'll go with comfortable, you know. Um, although I ended up in Thailand and it's blazing hot here, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, hell is miserable. Somehow heaven is somehow supposed to be pleasurable or, you know, better. And for a lot of people, and for a long time in my own life, that was kind of my, the extent of my understanding or grasp. And, and for me, heaven was something I wanted because the alternative just did not seem too appealing. But I couldn't honestly tell you what about heaven was good. In fact, I remember when uh, my kids were real little, real, real little, uh, we would have talks about heaven, and of course the kids want to know all about what heaven is. And um, we talk, I tried to paint it in as good a picture as I could. And uh, I remember them saying to me, do we have to really stay there forever? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's a really long time. We're not sure we really want to be there forever. Because apparently I didn't make it sound all that good. Um, is heaven a place where you really want to be forever? Why? What's there? Well, let's look at this, un unpack this a little more. We, we know that there's something about heaven that is good and pleasurable, comfortable, if you will. But taking it a, deep, a little bit to a deeper level, what is it that makes a place or makes something good or appealing or comfortable or desirable? Well, a little later in my spiritual journey, uh, when I got saved and I actually did want to go to heaven, and uh, I learned that Jesus was there, which was a real plus that we'll get into later. Um, <clears throat> but even at that point, the main motive for me going to heaven was not necessarily Jesus, but it was to play. And I pictured heaven as this great playground. And I uh, have two great loves of my life uh, outside, I mean, not like people loves, but thing loves, are skiing and backpacking. And my, my, my picture of what heaven could be if I could get heaven the way I wanted it would be like a never-ending mountain range of ski slopes and, and green meadows to go backpacking and hiking and fishing in, right? It's a great big place to play. Now, to be, now be honest with yourself. You don't have to raise your hands, but be honest. How many of you, you think of what, have, what you would like heaven to be? It's something more like that. It's a place where you can do the things you love to do. You don't have to raise your hand, but really... If, if heaven could be of your design, wouldn't you like it to be a place like that, that's like, kind of like everything on earth that you really love, only just infinite and bigger and better and without mosquitoes? Um, well, what is it about those experiences here on earth that make them good? 
Well, I thought about it, you know, and some of my desires to have a never-ending ski slope in heaven, which I think would be the coolest thing in the world. You could just ski forever and ever down and never get to hell. It's just always up on top of the mountain. <laughs> I love that concept. Um, what is it about those experiences that make them, in a sense, heavenly? Well, here's some things I thought of. First of all, one of the things about those experiences for me as I look back on them is the, the times that were the best and the most fun were never alone. It was skiing or backpacking or hiking or climbing mountains with my really good friends. And uh, we shared something together during those times that was just very special and fun. It was connecting, it was sharing, it was being with people who liked me and maybe even loved me and who I liked being with and maybe even to some extent loved and cared for. And we shared something together as we shared those experiences and that made it fun. I remember standing around on backpack trips, uh, standing around the campfire, late into the night, just sharing life, sharing our hearts, sharing our stories, sharing our crazy adventures, laughing at each other, sometimes crying with each other about life and sharing that together. And that's part of what makes it kind of heavenly, is connecting with people you love and care about. Um, I thought also one of the things that always makes it good for me is it's those two things are in a place that I love, surrounded by the mountains. And, uh, you know, you may argue with this. I've been to the Himalayas. The Himalayas are not bad. But I love Colorado mountains. I'm from Colorado. They're certainly better than Thailand's mountains. I don't know what it is. Mount Thailand has great mountains too. But something about the majesty of that place. And being up on top of a mountain, I remember watching the sunrise from the top of this mountain once, one of the most moving and worshipful experiences of my life. Uh, you know, and, and if I had my choice, every Sunday, we would have church on top of a mountain somewhere in Colorado. Or, you know, it's just kind of not real, there's some drawbacks. But if I had my choice, because there's something about the awe and wonder of God that you encounter there. There's something about being in God's creation, in the wildness of it, in the, the splendor of it that just rings with God's power and majesty. And so in that sense, it captures a bit of heaven. Uh, you can go on down the list. Um, for me, it was fun. Uh, it's something, skiing for me is something that I had mastered and could do extremely well, so I didn't have to work at it. Unlike golf. See, for me, hell would be an infinite, infinite numbers of, of holes of golf. <laughs> Okay, that would be hell, <laughs> okay? Because I'm not very good at it. Ask Rick. He'll tell you. It would be like spending eternity looking for lost golf balls. That's what it would be for me. <laughs> and that's not fun <laughs> or appealing. Um, th there's a sense in, in, uh, for me that it was, it, was, it was an escape, in a sense, from the real world. When I was out in the mountains skiing or hiking, I'm kind of away from all the worry and turmoil difficulty and stress and it was free and it was this kind of a joy in it because you are just away from all that kind of grind of life and it was good uh, it also for me was a real adventure and I think heaven will be a place of adventure of, of exploring and discovering one of, our, one of our worst conceptions of heaven is it's a static place you know, angels on clouds playing the harp. The same song over and over again. So you want to just bash them over the head with the harp. That's my thing. Okay, there's got to be adventure. There will be new songs in heaven. 
There will be new things in heaven. There will be things to explore. There will be ultimately encountering the fearful wonder and awe of God. You know, God is a terror. There is something ominous about his power that is frightening. I remember one time standing, we, we climbed this large mountain, huge peak, got to the top, and it was fogged in, it was raining, lightning. And so we sat down on this rock next to this ledge, we're sitting there, wind comes up and blows this cloud away, and I realize I'm sitting inches away from about a thousand foot sheer drop off. And it just kind of ripped my heart out. It's like, <clears throat> you know, I could have just slipped off that edge and not even known it. Well, something like that about God. There's something awesome and terrible about him. Um, and that's part of what heaven is. Well, heaven also, that's kind of one, one picture of it. It could be like that. If you're a girl, you're going, this is dumb. <laughs> yeah, <I don't> know. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, see, guys, guys are going, yeah, let's, do, let's go backpacking. Let's get dirty. Let's go fishing. That's right. Well, another experience in my life that was close to heaven, it may have even... It may have even outdone backpacking, maybe. Was the experience, I hate to admit this, of falling in love. Uh, there's something heavenly about that experience as well. Uh, for me, it happened a very long time ago, and it's becoming a fading memory. But as I think back on that experience as well, uh, you know, the, the, those feelings of first romance, of discovering that. You know, I don't know how it is for girls, but for guys, you know, we realize, you know, that we're not all that lovely. And when a girl actually loves you, it's like, well, it just kind of melts you. It's like, wow, this is unbelievable. And uh, there's something very heavenly about that as well. And uh, I think heaven will have a, a taste of that. Uh, it's, the, it's the subject of countless books and movies. It is something our world is obsessed with, this notion of falling in love. And maybe it is obsessed with it because it's something that we look for and we hope we will find in heaven. That we will be loved and experiencing the romance and joy of, of loving and being loved. I hope heaven is like that, don't you? I hope heaven is in a place where we are eternally falling in love. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Be cool. Only, only better than junior high because you never get dumped. That's the one drawback of falling in love I discovered um, you know it's amazing what 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 love does to us when we fall in love uh, one of the most amazing biographies uh, I would encourage you to read is the story of John Newton amazing story and this guy was a bum a, a no good lazy do nothing uh, and two times he met this girl who just captured his heart he went out, got a job, became a sailor, sailed the high seas, was captured, became a slave, was imprisoned as a slave in Africa for several years, almost starved to death, uh, was on ships that almost sank, eventually came to Christ, gave his life to God, all because he was in love with this girl. And like, I don't know, 12 years later, he finally marries her because he was in love. And he pursued that love with his heart. Well, I'm thinking heaven would need to have some element of that. A place where we pursue that kind of love and where we are being loved. Well, of course, the, the last thing about heaven that everybody, we have to concede is that, 
you know, there can't be sin there. Now, for some people, that in itself is a problem because uh, they think, well, if heaven is a place where there's no sin, it's surely to be boring. Now, be honest, okay? I'll ask you to raise your hands, but I know there's people here that think that. You're honest, you know, if there's nothing, if there's no vice, then what would be good about it? In fact, I've heard people say, not believers necessarily, but people say, well, I would rather go to hell and be with my friends and have fun than go to heaven. Because they're convinced that there's only fun in sin. Um, but the Bible tells us it's a place of no sin, and it says that that is a good thing. Okay, that there won't be sin and we'll actually be happy about it. Okay, and of course, if you are the victim of sin, that is especially a good thing, to be in a place where people are not sinning against you, where people are not taking advantage of you and abusing you and harming you. Well, those are some of the things that I think, when I think of heaven, I think are appealing to me, that make it a place where I want to be, and I really believe that those things will be a part of what heaven is. I don't know, it'll be you know, a never-ending ski slope, but some of what draws me to those things are what draw us ultimately to God and to this place he's created, this, these rooms that Jesus talks about where we will be with him. Um, and in John chapter 14, starting in verse 1, Jesus offers this promise. The resurrection is the promise of heaven. Because Jesus rose from the dead, because he died on the cross and rose again, you and I have the promise of looking forward to this place, this amazing place, this amazing state of being where we will be uh, constantly in love, constantly in adventure, constantly in awe and wonder, surrounded by deep, good friendships. And, you know, we're going to run the fire. We're going to laugh. You know, we're going to laugh at each other. You know, we're going to tell stories. I remember when, and we're going to get to tell each other stories. It's going to be, it's going to be an amazing thing. But what I want to talk about this morning is not that so much. Uh, In John chapter 14, Jesus offers that promise because of the resurrection. But the amazing thing is that he says that that what is offered for us someday in heaven is also offered to us today, here and now, at least as a taste, at least as a small portion and sample. And, you know, the reality is that when I think about people who, you know, in our Christian life, not only do we really not know why we want to go to heaven, but we don't really know why we, we are or what we are to experience of that here on earth today. And so for a lot of people, the Christian life becomes kind of, well, like the, the picture of heaven with the angels playing harps over and over again. You know, it's just like something that's just boring and, and dull and empty. And uh, I see a lot of young people who really are not pursuing the Christian life with passion because they're convinced that what the world offers must be better than what Jesus offers. And they're really unwilling to let go of what the world gives because they don't see anything in it good for themselves in what, what God gives us a taste of now. And Jesus, in John chapter 14, paints an amazing picture. We can't really get to all of it. It's going to be a quick survey of some of the things that he intends for us to possess here and now as it will, a taste of heaven on earth. So let's look at those. We're going to look at, I don't know, three things. First thing is, is uh, this whole idea of loving Jesus, of being in love. And uh, I'm going to take these verses kind of out of context. I would encourage you to, to, to meditate on this chapter. It's, an ama- it's amazing stuff. 
But let me look at three verses real quick about our love for Jesus. First verse 15, he says, If you love me, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Uh, then in verse 21, he says, Those who obey my commandments are the ones who are loving me. And the ones who are loving me, my Father will love them, and I will love them. Then in verse 23, he says again, All those who love me will do what I say, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and live with them. Love really is the first principle of our Christian life. It is, it is the first priority of what it means to be a Christian. Um, Jesus says, and these verses get very, uh, very often turned around and turned upside down, and we'll ex- explain it and unpack it piece by piece. He says, those who love me will obey my commandments. He doesn't say, you know, if you obey my commandments, then you prove your love for me. He says, the ones who love me are the ones who will be doing what I ask. Uh, is a natural outflow. The first verb is present tense. Those who are loving me now. The second verb, will be obeying me, is future tense. Um, what often gets taught and preached, especially in the way we present the gospel, is that sin and righteousness are the first principle. We oftentimes, and certainly this is important, and please don't understand, misunderstand me, our sin is a problem, and God's dealing with it is important. But is it the first thing that is the true principle of the gospel? I don't believe so. Jesus says the thing that matters first and foremost is our love for him. Then we will do the right things and live correctly and live properly. Um, what counts first and foremost is our love relationship and walk with him. Um, too often, we boil Christianity down to a business transaction. We've overspent our account and gone into debt because of sin. And Jesus came, not in love, but as a business broker who paid off the debt by his blood so that we can now live debt-free. Now, how's that for romantic? Isn't that a beautiful picture of romance? You know, we had a debt, a guy came along, paid our debt, and now we can live happily ever after. That's not the gospel. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, John chapter 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Can you imagine if it said, For God was such an obsessive, compulsive, disorder person. You know, he had OCD. And he looked at his beautiful, white, clean world, and it really bugged him that sin had stained everything. And so he sent his son Jesus to clean up the mess so that we could live the rest of our lives and not bug uh, an obsessive, compulsive God. Right? Because that would be not the right version of John 3.16, right? Okay? God's concern is not our sin. Our sin is a problem. God's ultimate concern is our love for him and his love for us. Sin is the problem that has ruined that love. But what God is most concerned about is our love for him. And so therefore, our love relationship with him is the thing that is most essential. It should be the thing about our Christian life that most consumes our our heart and our thought and our mind and our worship. It should be the very center of our Christian life is our love relationship with God. But far too often, 
uh, we switch this around and we read it this way. I've got to obey God. I've got to keep his rules. I've got to keep his commandments so that maybe God will love me. And our focus of our Christian life becomes all about how good we are at performing for God. How good we are at doing the right things or avoiding the wrong things. And, you know, we're constantly doing the wrong things and so we get depressed and we decide we can't do it and we give up and we say, well, it's just stupid anyway. And I'm just going to trust that in the end God somehow, you know, the debt thing still is canceled and when I get to heaven, you know, uh, somehow I can get in because I'm not going to be in debt. Right? Jesus says the first principle, the thing that matters is that we love him above everything. Um, and, and he says that this love is a love that loves to please. And when he says, if you love me, if you are loving me, you will obey. You will keep my word and my commands. What he's really saying is this, that if our Christian life is so consumed with loving God, that we will love to do what pleases him. There's really two kinds of obedience. And I was reminded of, of these two kinds of obedience this past week rather graphically. Um, this past week, I took uh, the kids from our children's home, six, six of them, five boys and one girl, to the beach to a Thai camp. Okay, and we had some help, some ladies, but there were basically five boys, and, and I was the only guy, well, and Mark, another guy who helped, two of us. And so we had these three boys, three to six years old, right, for a week. Oh, man. And, uh, and I realized that there's two kinds of obedience, okay? And I realized that when, when you're three to five years old, obedience is, is conformity to our demands based on fear of consequences. Okay, that's the only hope. Okay, that is the only hope. The only thing that works is if you threaten them with death, all right? I mean, these kids had just no clue. They were just wild. One day we're at the, the, the resort where we stay, well, it was in a resort, as a camp, a Christian camp, right near the beach. I said, okay, boys, it's time to go swimming. They get excited. They love the beach. A um, couple minutes later, one of the Thai guys comes in and says, two of your kids are headed to the beach. I looked out the window, and there they are, pew, down the path, halfway to the beach. I take off running after them, and it's not a big deal. You know, they're four years old, crossing highways, going playing in the ocean by themselves. Not a problem, right? No big deal. Uh, and, you know, I run down, chase them down, and I realize that these guys have got to learn to obey. And they're not going to obey because they think it makes sense or because it's a good idea, cause, certainly not because they respect me. They're going to only obey for one reason, because I'm going to kill them if they don't. <laughs> and so that's what we kind of had this agreement with, you know. You don't listen to me, you're going to die, okay? So you better listen. And that pretty well worked. Uh, okay, that's one kind of obedience. And that kind of obedience requires very clear lists of rules. You will do this. You will not do that. Okay? And if you do this, you'll die. Okay? And that's how it works. That's one kind of obedience. Um, we oftentimes read this passage thinking of that kind of obedience. If we love God, we will conform to his outward rules so that he won't zap us or smash us, or crush us, or so there won't be some evil consequence in our life. And we think that that's what love is. And we think that's what God and the Christian life is about. Not crossing the line so God will zap us. Well, that is one kind of love, or one kind of obedience, rather. But there's another kind. 
And I learned this kind uh, myself when I was about 14 years old on a backpack trip, okay, one of my first ever, uh, with a guy who I grew to love. His name was John Mayton. He was, uh, had, been a, had lived a very wild, wild and crazy life. He had been in Vietnam as a sailor in the Navy. Uh, he'd been in combat for about 10 years. During that time, he got uh, deeply addicted to drugs and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, eventually, he ended up in jail and in prison, and he came to Christ. And uh, he just was full of life single guy. He had all these great war stories. He had scars. He was a sailor. He was an amazing storyteller. And uh, I just thought this guy was bigger than life. And he loved God. And the amazing thing is he, uh, he for some reason, really liked me. And I went on several uh, backpack trips with the Bible camp with him where he was the leader. And he really liked me. And he shared several times about how his affection for me. Well, that love that he directed towards me and just the fact that he was like a hero to me. I love this guy. I mean, I just thought he could do no wrong. I love this guy. And I would have done anything for him. I would have done anything for him. And in fact, just to give you an idea of how, how much I wanted to please him, how much I wanted to show my love for him by doing whatever he wanted. One night we're on this backpack trip out in the middle of nowhere and he preaches, tells a story about David and his men who sneak into the enemy camp and fetch the cup of water out of the well, right out of the enemy camp. Remember that story? And they bring it back to David out of their love and devotion for David. And he pours it out on the ground because he can't drink because he's been so moved by their devotion. Well, I thought, I got this great idea. I thought, I'm going to show John Mayton how much I love him. So the next day, me and a couple of guys hiked out of this huge deep valley to the top of this great big high mountain, treacherous hike, very difficult climb, get up there so we could go to this snack shop that's up on top of this mountain and buy him a donut and bring it back to him and offer him this donut. Because we just loved this guy. And we wanted to show him how much we appreciated him. He ate the donut, by the way. <laughs> yeah. See, that's a different kind of love. That's a love that's so... Um, it's a different kind of obedience. And it's obedience that flows out of a heart that is in love with the person and can't think of doing anything but what pleases and honors that person. You know, that's, that's the kind of love that marriage should be built on. You know, imagine if when you fell in love, your wife said, okay, if you love me, you'll do these three things. You will keep the toilet seat down, you will pick up your dirty socks, and you won't pick your nose. Okay? And so you think that's what love is. And so you do those three things faithfully. And after a year or two, you know, you, you always keep those rules and you think, I've proven my love for my wife. I've kept those rules. And after a while, your wife's going to go, you don't love me. You go, what do you mean I don't love you? I, I always put the toilet seat down. She's going to go, no, that's not what love is. Love is more than that. Right? And love is not just keeping a list of rules. It is desiring with all your heart to do what pleases that person when they don't even say it. When your heart for them is so deep, they don't have to speak the words. You just know what will make them happy. And you long and you desire to do that because you love them so much. See, that's a different kind of obedience. And in, in that kind of obedience, there is no need for rules. There is no need for lists of spelling it out. Because it's a love that goes far beyond that. And see, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, if you're loving me, you'll be doing what pleases and honors me. You will love my purpose and my heart and my mission and my vision for ministry. 
And it will stir your heart and you will just do those things because you love me. You know, when we get to heaven, why is it you won't sin? Did you ever think about that? I was wondering, when I get to heaven, why is it there I'm not going to sin? And here I do so much. Uh, and you could say, well, for one, there's probably no opportunity there. Uh, for two, maybe there's like some really big, gnarly angels with, with sticks that like if you even think about it, they just come up, whack you upside the head or something. I don't know. <clears throat> why is it in heaven you won't sin? Of course, Paul says that this body that, in which sin lives is changed and transformed. We get a new body that's somehow uh, not given to sin nature. But you know the real reason why I think, the, the, the root reason why we won't sin in heaven? Because our love for God will be so perfected that in heaven we can't imagine dishonoring him. And you see, that's the only way you will ever overcome sin in your life. It's not by discipline. It's not by self-will. It's not by trying to retrain your mind, although those are important steps to take. But ultimately, you will overcome sin when your desire for God and loving Him becomes so great in your life that you can't even imagine sinning, that you can't even imagine doing what would break God's heart because of your love for Him. See, that's why love must be the first principle in our life. That's why our love relationship with God must be the very center and core of all that our Christian life and experience is about. Uh, The sad thing is, as I go around teaching in places like India and Sri Lanka and wherever, even here in Thailand in, in tribal villages, I cannot tell you how many times I've asked people in these settings, Christians, pastors, Bible college professors, Ask them, what is the great commandment? Silence. They cannot, over and over again, I've had this experience, they cannot tell me the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They sit there with blank looks on their face and they have no clue because they don't understand that the Christian life is first and foremost about loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. They think it is about the first kind of obedience. That I've got to keep this list of rules or God's going to smack me upside the head. To them, that's the Christian life. And sadly, in, in far too much of the church and in far too many people's lives, that's their experience of the Christian life. It's no wonder there's no taste of heaven. Because that's not heaven. Okay, that's not it. Heaven is going to be a place where we are overwhelmingly in the midst of a divine romance with God. And we are so in love with him that we can't think of doing anything but the right thing. Um, and Jesus says, amazingly, that, that we can have that love relationship now. Um, he also says that love does not begin or end with us. And this is real important. You may think, you know, this sounds extremely selfish. This sounds extremely, like, me-centered, like it's just all about me getting love and being loved and being happy. Well, that would be true, except for one thing, that the love doesn't start with us and it doesn't end with us. We are not the center of this love relationship. God is. Now, we, we started this story, and we started in the middle of John, in the middle of John chapter 14. There's a lot that went on before we got to this point in the story. This is, believe it or not, the first time in the Gospel of John that there's been a single mention of the disciples loving Jesus. 
Up to this point, it's been all about God's love for them. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And at this time, as the Passover feast came about, Jesus began to show them the full extent of his love for them. And as he moved towards the cross and the, and the Passion Week, as he sat down to this Passover supper, he began to, the process, the journey of showing the full extent of his love for them. We cannot love God on our own. You can't just dig down in your heart and decide, well, you know, that sounds good. I think I'm going to try this loving God thing. Sounds good. Can't do it on your own. Your love for God can only be a reflection, a giving back of the love he's already give, given to you. You do not, you are not an original source of love. Okay, you're only a broker of it. Okay, you do not invent it. You don't create it. It doesn't come from within you. Love comes from somewhere else. Well, where does it come from? Well, it comes from God himself because God is love. He is the source and originator and heart of love. And that's why John 3.16 does say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son out of his great love for you. That's why Romans says, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God loved us first. And our loving him is simply a response. Uh, it is the right response as we are filled with his love. But it doesn't only start with us, um, with God, but it also ends with God. And in this passage, uh, Jesus uh, makes some amazing statements we don't really have time to reflect on, but uh, you know, go home and meditate on these. Uh, because, uh, verse 21, those who obey my commandments, they are the ones who love me. And the New Living Translation has a word. If you have a New Living Translation, I don't recommend erasing words out of your Bible, but you need to erase this word. Because it says, and because they love me, my Father will love them. Okay, erase the word because. Okay, it's not in the Greek. It's a terrible translation. And it's a good example of how confused we are about this whole concept. Okay? Uh, it literally says, the one, and the ones who are loving me, those the Father loves. And it's present tense. Those the Father is loving. Not future tense. Those the Father is loving. And I will love them. Okay? It's an amazing thing. God loves us. He saves us. He cleanses our hearts so that we can enter into a love relationship with Him. So by His grace and by His doing, by His move in our life, we love Him. And then He loves us back even more. The Father loves us. Jesus, the Son, loves us. Um, do you really grasp that? I'll be very honest. To be honest, most of the time, I don't believe this. Okay? I just can't believe it. Because I'm a guy, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I go, who would love you? And uh, I know my sin. I know the evilness of my heart. Uh, and I think, how could God do this? But he does. We must be people who believe with all of our heart that God loves us. And it is ultimately an act of faith. Um, he loves us. How do we... Um, Psalm 69.16 says this. He says, I will sing of your power. I will shout for joy each morning because of your unfailing love. You want to know the test of if you really are living in love with God? 
The test is this. If you wake up in the morning and you are just so filled with joy, you can't help but screaming, man, God loves me. Wow. Okay, that means you really get it. Okay, I don't usually wake up that way. Okay, maybe after 10 cups of coffee, I go, wow, God loves me. Cool. Okay? Okay, I'm, I'm just like way short of where it needs to be. Okay, I have a long ways to go, honestly, in grasping God's love, and I think we all do. Okay, if we, if we really understood it, man, we would be some happy people. We would be experiencing heaven on earth. Okay, well, how do we how do we grow a deeper love for Jesus? How do we do that? Well, real briefly, first of all, it does start with His love for us. We have to tell ourselves. I I have to tell myself this every day. Every day, I I, I reflect and meditate, and I look at these scriptures that say God loves me. And honestly, I have to tell myself over and over again, God loves me. Again, that sounds so incredibly selfish and self-centered, but it is not because it is the center. It is the first principle. It is the center of what the Christian life is about. And if I think that God's love is, you know, it's too proud, too self-centered, too selfish, I am discounting the very heart of God's plan for me. It's pride. If I'm telling God, you know, you, you, know I, you can't love me that much, it's pride, okay? It's where you need to humble yourself and say, I am desperately in need of his love. It is the thing that I long for. It is the thing the world longs for. That's why we have billions of dollars spent every year on romance novels and on movies about love because people are hungry for love. They are searching for it everywhere. It's at the root of a myriad of sin. Okay, we need to be loved. You need to be, some of you really need to be loved, okay? And some of you really need to get a clue that you are loved by the infinite God of the universe. Not because you're good enough, not because of anything you have done, but just because he has made you his child. Okay, you need to tell yourself, I have to tell myself that every day and drill it into my head over and over again. You know, God really does love me. I don't believe it. I can't comprehend it, but he loves me. He loves you, just like you are. When you sin, and when you mess up, when you do stupid things, his love is unchanged. His love is undiminished. His love is unfading. It is unfailing. Okay, you cannot exhaust or wear out his love. It starts there. Secondly, it does take faith. You have to tell yourself that over and over again. Then at some point, you actually have to believe it. It's kind of a requirement. Okay, you have to believe that it's true. And that's why Jesus started out this chapter saying, believe me, believe that it's true. Um, then uh, you ultimately have to make a choice to love him. Uh, love ultimately is a choice we make. Uh, every person who's been married for more than about four minutes knows this, okay? That after you get married, it's all great. You fall in love, it's all great. And then the real work of loving starts. And the real work of loving is a choice where you decide, you know, this person is not keeping my list very well and they are keeping this seat up on the toilet and they're doing a lot of other things that I didn't put on the list that I wish I would have. But I am going to love them anyway. I'm going to desire and long for their good anyway. Same is true with God. We must choose to love him, to set our heart toward him, 
to open up our heart and let him come in and fill us with his love and goodness. To decide that even though we are not good enough and we are not worthy of our love, that we will humble ourselves and allow him to love us. Allow, even if nobody else has ever loved you, allow that God's bigger than the people who failed you. And where other people could not love you, God can. Uh, and we choose to love him. First thing, that's the first thing. A couple more things really quick. Um, second thing, we need to experience God's presence. Uh, this passage is filled with references about not only God loving us, but God being with us. One of the things that is great about heaven is that he is there. And it will be cool someday. It was an awesome time of worship this morning. And that song, the new song we sang, uh, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah, the nation's praising God. Great song. Someday we're going to be in heaven before the very throne of God, in his presence, singing those songs with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Man, it's going to be, it's going to be cool. I mean, it's just going to be amazing. But just as God offers us a, a room in heaven, likewise, he promises to come to us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. Uh, he says in two accounts here and, and throughout in chapters uh, 16 and 17, Jesus promises the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. My Spirit will come and will live in you. I will be in you. Um, in verse 21, Jesus says, The Father will love you and I will love you and I will reveal myself to you. I will make myself plain and clear to you. Uh, certainly to the disciples that meant that after the resurrection he would appear to them. But I think it falls, falls short if we leave it at that. I think it's a promise to every believer that Jesus desires out of his love to reveal himself to you. Now, does that mean someday you're going to wake up and he's going to be like sitting on the foot of your bed? Probably not. I remember when I was 13 years old, desperate, miserable, uh, crying out to God. I said, God, if you're really real, you know, show up and you know, come sit on my bed and talk to me. And I begged, I cried. I, I, I tried to muster all the faith I could. He never showed up uh, in the way I thought he should. But he showed up, and he began revealing himself to me. And he began showing himself to me. And I'm here today, I believe, as, a, as an answer, that God answered that prayer, that he has been revealing himself to me. Um, we can experience Jesus' presence in his revelation. Uh, later it says, um, verse 23 says, uh, my Father will love them, and we will come, and we will live with them. The word that's lived there is the same exact word that's used in verse 1, where Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Okay, there are many dwelling places. Same word that's used. Jesus says, I am, I am my Father are going to come, and we are going to put a room on your house. Okay, we're going to add a room to your house, so that in the meantime, before you come live in our house, we're going to come hang out at your house. Amazing. Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, is with us. Okay? You know, a lot of our songs really misspeak when they say, Lord Jesus, come to us. You know, we want to be with you. You really don't have to pray that because it's a done deal. Whether you want him here or not, in fact, he is with you. Okay, he, he has built a room. He's added on. He's like, you know, the annoying mother-in-law who won't go away. He's there. He's just there full time, okay? The question for all of us is, you know, that's all great and true and it's wonderful. We know the Holy Spirit's with us. We know he's in us. 
Jesus is with us. But I believe what Jesus is talking about here is not just that he's here, but that we experience his presence. Uh, Why is it we don't experience him more? Why is it we don't experience God in our life? Well, I think there's two problems. One is, first of all, that we are looking for a experience, not the experience of life. You know, it's interesting. Jesus told the disciples, the Holy Spirit's been with you this whole time. I have been with you this whole time. Was it an experience? Were they having this ecstatic, you know, wild, crazy experience where they were being slain in the Spirit and, you know, frothing at the mouth and you know, jumping up and down? No. How did they experience the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus said you experience him because he guides you into truth, because he teaches you, because he comes alongside you, because he comforts you. You see, we experience God sometimes in those ecstatic moments. But what he desires is that we experience him just in the everyday experience of life. You know, as I get up and preach, uh, you know, the, the goal is that the Holy Spirit comes alongside and what I speak is from him. Okay, and I experience him guiding and leading me into truth. If God speaks to you through the sermon and you go, wow, that was good. It wasn't me, it was the Holy Spirit speaking to you. If you didn't get anything, it's not my fault. It's because you weren't listening to the Holy Spirit. See? Okay? It's because you were, you know, not experiencing the Spirit. Okay? Because it's all got to be Him. And that's how we experience Him. Okay? And it's not that we can't experience Him through spiritual gifts, science gifts. We can. But what Jesus is talking about is everyday encounter with God in everyday life. Uh, why don't we experience God more? I'll tell you short and simple answer is this. He says, I come and I am building a home so I can live with you. I think the reason a lot of us do not experience God is because we just aren't home very much. You know, the reality is our soul is a very empty and vacated place where at best we pass through on fleeting moments and Jesus barely gets our attention and we're gone. Because our lives are so distracted and we are so uh, undisciplined and unable to go to that place in our heart and life of, of our soul where God has built his house and to abide with him. Uh, how many of you, prayer is like this. This is oftentimes my prayer experience. I sit down and say, God, I'm going to meet with you. You know, I'm going to go. I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to pray. All right? Go to that place get my mind focused, read a couple of psalms, start praying, and I make it about 30 seconds and my mind has gone, you know, and I'm 10,000 miles away. You ever have that? So I have to go fetch my mind, drag it, drag, drag, drag it back. Okay, focus, focus. Another four seconds. You know, I'm talking, I'm having some discussion with somebody else. And I run over there, drag it back. Okay, I may make it 12 seconds, you know. And it's just like my prayer line becomes one constant rabbit trail, you know. Why? Because I don't know how to be at home. It's like I sit down, and this, I do this in, in real life as well. You know, I sit down to study, and I remember something i got to do. I get up, you know, I go and do it. I sit back down, oh, crack the book, oh, yeah, right? Well, I do that mentally in my soul as well. How many of us, that as our spiritual life, you know, we're so unable to be at home in our heart and soul and if you cannot stay there, you cannot meet with God. You cannot experience his presence because he lives there. And if you don't know how to be there with him, 
you won't encounter his presence. For me, one of the greatest disciplines that's helped me with that is to really learn what it means to meditate, to really learn what it means to focus my mind on him. And uh, there's some simple drills, there's some good books, there's some uh, resources out there to help you do that. And it sounds weird, it sounds like, you know, kind of new agey, but it works, okay? For me, what works is I, I, I sit down, I take one or two verses of scripture, and I start just saying those verses over and over again in my mind. Not allowing my mind to think about anything else, but just those words. And I say them very slowly, I say them with my breathing, so I breathe in one or two words, I breathe out a couple more words, I focus, I relax, I spend time, uh, 15, 20, 30 minutes, just letting those words pass through my mind. And I found and discovered that by doing that, I can teach my heart and mind to stop and sit, and be still and quiet, to stay home for 30 minutes. And, and God does meet us there. He comes to us. He speaks to us. And then from there, I found that then I can pray. Then I can really read the word and, and focus on it. Okay? Um, you know, we live crazy lives. And we are people who are so distracted, both externally and internally. And it's no wonder that for us, life is not heaven on earth. It's not even a taste of heaven on earth. Because we just haven't learned to live and walk in this close, abiding love relationship with God. You know, the world around us desperately is looking for God's love. If we do not possess it, if we don't know how to live and walk in it, how can we show anyone else to do it? You know, they're not just looking for, I mean, they are looking for a quick fix to their sin problem. But deep down inside, that's not what's going to draw them to Christ. Their lives are disjointed and chaos. And I'll tell you, Thai people don't feel loved. Because in their lives, nobody loves them. And they need to know that God loves them. And that they can have a love relationship with him. We have got to take possession of that so that we know how to give it and share it with others. What does this look like in real life? There's more in this passage I'm going to have to skip, but let me just close with these, this last verse in verse 31. What does this look like in real life? How does this work? In verse 30, Jesus says, I don't have much more time to talk with you because the prince of this world approaches Jesus was hours away from the cross. But he said, the prince of this world has no power over me. He has nothing over me. But I will do what the Father requires of me. I will do what the Father commands so that the world will know that I love the Father. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Interestingly, it never says that Jesus died because he loves you. God the Father sent his son because God loves you. But why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus says here, I am doing this because of my incredible love for the Father. I am going to go in obedience to the cross. 
because of my love for the Father and so that I can show and prove to the world how much I love the Father. It was God's love for us that sent Jesus, but it was Jesus' love for the Father and his desire to demonstrate and prove that love to the world that he could go to the cross. And that's why Hebrews 12 says, um, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What joy was there on the cross? Well, it was the joy of obeying the Father, of fulfilling the Father's perfect plan of love and grace. And so Satan had no say over his life. He could say, Satan has no power over me at all because I'm doing this because of my great love for God, because that's the driving force in my life. And it is my joy. Here he is hours before the cross. He is calm. He is at rest. Uh, He is ready to go to the cross because of his love for the Father. Amazing picture. Let's pray. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because you first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love you for wearing the thorns on your brow. But if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee in life and I will love thee in death and praise thee as long as thou gives me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And then in mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Lord Jesus, we must know that you love us. We ask and pray that you would reveal as you promised. Reveal to us yourself and your love for us. Lord, give us a taste of what we someday will experience in heaven. Lord, give us a taste of that now so that we will be... um, just turn loose to take that love to the world around us so that we will have something to give to our brother and our neighbor so that we will have the love of God to take to them. And most of all, Lord, that it would be the ruling force in our life. God, show us what it means to be in love with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.